I'm not sure if you've noticed, but over the last number of weeks, the emphasis coming from this pulpit, whether from myself, Scott, or Jim, has been on God's grace. I mean, there has been just such an emphasis on the grace of God. And, and truth be told, that wasn't planned, but from talking to many of you, I really do believe it's what we've been needing. This morning is going to be more of the same. And again, it wasn't planned. I was sharing with the, uh, with the team serving this morning that I chose Psalm 32 because it was on a list that I've been using of essential psalms that people should know and understand. Um, yeah, like, so there's no, like, magic aha moment that I had this week, like, Psalm 32, that's what I'm going to do. The Lord really, pre-. no, I was reading through a list of psalms that, that are important, that are influential, that, that we should be knowing, and Psalm 32 was on that list. I read through it, and I thought, this is really compelling. This is really important stuff. And so, so we're going to be working through Psalm 32 this morning. I want to read you a quote from an Old Testament scholar, Walter Brueggemann, and I have a slide for this. He says this about Psalm 32. Though an unfortunate misnomer, this psalm in Christian tradition has been identified as a penitential psalm. In fact, there's nothing in this psalm about penitence of any conventional kind. Rather, the psalm is an affirmation about the miracle of God's forgiveness that requires none of the discipline or work of penitence. The miracle of forgiveness. The miracle of God's forgiveness. And that's really what it is. It's a miracle. Something that is otherworldly, something that breaks the laws of human nature. And God offers it freely to anyone who wants it. Anyone who is willing to humble themselves and simply be honest with him about who we are. Psalm 32 paints a picture of what a life marked by confession and God's grace could look like. At the same time, it also shows us how damaging it is when we choose to hide our stuff from God. There are some hard words in this psalm, but we also see a picture of a God who wants to forgive us, who wants to redeem us, who wants to ransom us, and who wants to surround us with his steadfast love. And so if you do have your Bibles, I'd ask you to turn to Psalm 32. We also have it on the screen behind us, and it is in your bulletin. So let's jump right in. These first two verses, it says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, first of all, what stands out to me as I read this psalm are the words that those first two verses begin with, that word blessed. We're looking at a beatitude. Right? The Sermon on the Mount has all those lists of blessings. Blessed are blank, blessed are blank, blessed are blank, blessed are blank. What a beatitude is, and we've talked about this in the past, it's not a blessing that is actively poured out by God from on high, but rather it's the experience that we have when we participate in the event or activity being described. Right? That's the sort of blessing that a beatitude is. It's that ground-up blessing. Here's another way to think of it. If your transgression or your rebellion against God is forgiven, if your sin is covered, if Yahweh isn't holding your evil against you, then you are living the good life. Then you are living a life of flourishing. To be blessed 
in this sense is to experience the joy and freedom of swimming with the current of God's love, not against it. You guys tracking with that? It's not an active blessing that God's pouring out. It's just the experience we receive. It's the experience that we have when we are enjoying God's forgiveness, right? Happy is the one. Uh, some of the old school um, translations describe this, right? Use that as a translation. It's the good life. It's the good life. There's, there's more here, right? The end of verse 2 says that the blessed one has a spirit which there is no deceit. In other words, the blessed one doesn't hide from God. Now, this reminds me, as I'm going through this text, it reminded me of Adam and Eve back in Genesis chapter 3. So I want to I read a quick story there for you in Genesis chapter 3. And you can just listen. This is, this is after they sinned, after they fell into the temptation that was offered to them by the serpent. It says this in verse 8 in Genesis chapter 3. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, what did they do? They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave the fruit to of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? Check this out. Verses three through four. It goes like this. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. See, we've all experienced this hiding from God. We've all experienced what the psalmist is talking about here. Because when we hide ourselves from God, when we keep our sin to ourselves, when we try to cover up our wrongdoing, something happens to us, right? We grow miserable. We feel spiritually, emotionally, and even physically like, like just broken. In other words, when we don't deal with our stuff, it doesn't just go away. It eats at us and it builds up a barrier between us and God. Now to go back to Adam and Eve, that's what they did. Bible says that they sewed fig leaves together to cover their nakedness. In their sin, they built up a barrier between themselves and God. They were ashamed, so they hid. But what I love about this story and what I love about the, the sort of God that we serve is that, like, because we need to remember, right, God asks a question, but we also know who God is. God is not the sort of God that doesn't know what's going on. Right? God's fully aware that Adam and Eve sinned. And, and so he's in the garden in the cool of the day. And what's he doing? He's looking for them. He's looking for them. Again, he knows where they are, but it's supposed to teach us something about the character of God. That even when we're neck deep in sin, in shame, hiding ourselves, God is out looking for us, pursuing after us. Is tracking with that? Like, and that's such good news. That's so important for us to recognize that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that in the midst of our sin, the Bible says that grace abounds, like grace overflows in the midst of our struggles. That's the sort of God we serve. This God who runs after us, 
This God who's not willing to just let us just, just like walk away, like he wants to pursue us. And there's something so beautiful about that. There's something so lovely about that. But man, look at these verses again, verses three and four. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. You know, another translation says that my bones were brittle. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Like I'm wasting away in the heat. I'm wasting away in a desert place. This is what happens to us when we keep silent before God. We waste away. Now see, the psalmist understands both paths paths that are being presented here. There's there's the blessed, blessed path, and then there's the path of wasting away. And what he's trying to communicate to us, what he's encouraging us toward is a life of honesty and confession. And he is reassuring us that when we do that, what we'll experience on the other end is not a look of disappointment from our heavenly father, but rather his arms wide open to receive us back. Do you believe that? Do you believe that when you go to God in your sin, he's not looking at you disappointed? He's saying, come. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jim Lang asked the question a few weeks ago, how do you imagine God's posture toward you? Have you wrestled with that question at all? Have you... Have you, have you wrestled with the fact that maybe your understanding of God is not shaped by the scriptures, but, but rather something else is clouding your understanding of who the Father is? Check out what happens in verse 5. It says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That word acknowledged, it, it simply means to make known, to speak aloud. And check out what the psalmist does. In verse 1, God is the one who covers our sin. Did you, did you check that? Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And now here in verse 5, what, what, what he does is he talks about this sort of covering that, that we do when we cover our own iniquity. And that sort of covering, it leads to the life of, of just pain and disaster that's being described in those couple of verses. Right, verses three and four. So there's two types of covering. And we saw that take place in the story of Adam and Eve, right? They tried to cover their own sin, whereas God is saying, no, 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 I will take care of that for you. I will cover your sin. You don't need to do that. All you need to do is make it known to me. Make it known to me. Acknowledge the fact that you messed up, right? Some of us have a harder time doing that than others. Some of us have a harder time admitting that we are not everything we ought to be. And God is inviting us into a relationship of honesty and transparency where we confess our sins before him, where we make known the things that we are struggling with. The point Acknowledge your sin to God. Confess to him. Confess to one another as James tells us to do. Don't cover it up. Don't hide it. Don't justify it. And if we do that, if we bear ourselves to God, the text says God will forgive the iniquity of our sin. Look at verse 5. Is there anything else there 
After, it says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Is there anything else that's required of us? Is there anything in there that's required of us? The answer is no. The answer is no. There's nothing in between the lines that it's, it doesn't say, confess your sin to me and also like do a little dance, um, you know, spin something around the air a few times. Like, no, it just says, confess your sin to me and I will forgive you. Confess your sin to me and I will forgive you. Like full period, stop, that's how it works. Man, that's really good news. That's really good news. There's no dance we need to perform. There's no hoops we need to jump, jump through. God simply requires our honest, humble confession. Which if we scratch at that a bit, what he's asking of us is to believe. To have faith. Now the reason I say all of that is because that's what the Apostle Paul seems to indicate a little bit later on in his letter to the church at Rome. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 4. I'm going to read to you these first 12 verses. And we also have it up on the screen as well. It says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God or put his faith in God or entrusted himself to God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due, right? If you go to work, you don't have to say thank you to your boss when they pay you. It's not a gift. Like, the thank you is the work you did, right? Now, I'm not saying it will be a jerk to your boss. That's what I'm saying. But the reality is, is you don't actually have to say thank you. It doesn't make sense. The thank you is literally the thing that you're doing. And to the one who does not work, verse 5, but believes in him or entrusts himself to him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those lawless deeds, are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Does that sound familiar? We just read that in Psalm 32. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? or also for the uncircumcised. We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believed without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abram had before he was circumcised. Now, we said circumcised a lot, okay? But what's going on here? It's pretty simple. Abraham, the forefather of our faith, he believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, 
And then notice that Paul quotes our psalm, and he argues that David is also operating in the realm of faith. And we know that because Abraham was counted righteous when? Before or after he was circumcised? Before. What does that mean? Right? This is important. Right? What that means is that Abraham, the father of our faith, the father of Judaism, did not adhere to the works of the law in order to experience the grace of God. What he did was say, God, I believe what you're saying. I believe what you're saying. And then what happened is that Abraham was regarded or counted as righteous before God. By grace, through faith, we have been saved, not by works. And so, what that means, because Paul is quoting this psalm and he's shoving Abraham into the story with David, what that means is is the blessed one, the blessed one, those of us who have received God's forgiveness, God's grace, the blessed one is the one who believes. The blessed one is the one who believes. The blessed one is the one who confesses their sin to God and trusts that God is going to make good on his promise and forgive us. Not by works. Now, do works follow? They do, right? Circumcision followed Abraham's um, confession of faith. But it's not the basis of our forgiveness. You guys tracking with that? Oh, that's so important, but it's also so good. It's so good. It's, it's the story of our salvation. See, see I'm, I'm a big believer of preaching the text that's in front of me. That's, that's how I preach. I don't know if you've noticed that, but the text that's in front of me, I preach. What's in front of us right now is the beautiful message of God's salvation to sinners. That's what's in front of us. And how he accomplishes it is, is, is by calling us to humble ourselves and receive that free gift of God's grace by believing and confessing our sins to him. Are you guys tracking with that? Check this out. Let's jump down to verse 22 of Romans chapter 4. It goes like this. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised From the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. To confess our sin, to make our sin known to God, is to run from the path of self-justification, to flee a life of silence and deceit before God, and to entrust ourselves to him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. And when we do that, God says... I forgive the iniquity of your sin. That is really good news. That is really good news. When we confess, God is faithful and just to forgive us. Why? Because he raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead which means that the reason why he was dead was to bear the brunt of our sin. 
That's what's going on in this psalm. And you know what? I don't even think David knows what he's fully writing about. I don't even, I can't imagine he has a full picture of what he is articulating to us. But you know what? He's caught up in, 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 in this life with God and he's writing as God inspires him to write and he's praising God. And what he's doing to us is he's showing us the wonder and beauty and glory of our salvation. That's what this is about. The text continues. Check this out. Verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer to you, offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. This word therefore, it could literally be translated as on account of this or for this reason. And so in other words, because of this wonderful reality that the good life is a life marked by honest confession before God, a life marked by, by trust that he'll forgive us and embrace us and that hiding your sin from God leads to a life of desert heat and unbearable burden. If you consider yourself to be godly or faithful, pray. Pray. Now there's two things going on here, I believe. The first is a message to us as, as followers of Jesus, those who have entrusted ourselves to God. What the psalmist is telling us to do, he's saying pray. Pray, be with God. Keep the lines of communication between you and God open. Be somebody who regularly confesses, who is in the habit of cultivating your relationship and do this at a time when he might be found. In other words, do this when there isn't sin to confess, when the burdens of life aren't too heavy to bear because guess what? There is a rush of great waters coming. There always is. And if we're only going to trust God during those times, we're only going to go to him in prayer during those times, he's there. I'm not saying that he won't hear those prayers, but there's a practical reality. It's really hard to pray, to confess, to ask when you're out of practice. That's just true. And, and, and if we've walked with God for any length of time, whenever we've had those dry spells where we're not really spending a lot of time with God and we try to like step back into that relationship, it's awkward, right? It's like a teenage dance, right? Like no one knows what to do in sixth grade. They're like, I don't know, right? Like that's what happens to us. We're like, hey God, like our father in heaven who art, like I don't remember, right? And so what God is saying is like, no, 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 like cultivate that relationship. Be in community with your heavenly father. Take the time. Speak to him. Right? Let me explain it a little bit differently. Every relationship deepens as we open ourselves up to one another. The more we let a friend in, a spouse, a parent, the deeper the bond becomes. And that letting in happens when we spend time with one another. Talking over a cup of coffee. Sharing our lives with one another around a dinner table. And as we cultivate those relationships, we start to find comfort and refuge in them. Those of you who have deep bonds with people, you know what I'm talking about. The same is true conversely, right? When you don't do that, all of a sudden that relationship begins to kind of wither away. You don't have the same connection with the person maybe you did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, whatever the case may be, because you haven't kept up with it, right? So it's just a practical sort of like, like, encouragement to those of us who are walking with Jesus. Like, when, when he can be heard, when, when the time is, is, is available, like, cultivate that relationship with God. Use that time. Deepen your relationship with him. But there's another thing going on here. There's another thing going on here. 
He says this, he says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great, great waters, they shall not reach him. Now, water in the Old Testament, if, if, you've, if you've been around the Old Testament at all, you know that water is a sign of like trouble. Water is a sign of disaster, of chaos, right? It's in, it's in Genesis chapter one that, that the spirit of God was hovering over the waters, over the face of the deep. And the language used to describe that scene, um, the, the Hebrew's fun, it's tohu vavohu, formless and void, topsy-turvy, chaos, a mess, broken. And like, that's what the waters sort of communicate to us. Why? Because the waters are unknown. And even for us now, right? Like, like I'm not a seafaring man, right? Like, Dan, you're a seafaring man. You understand, like, maybe you don't get scared on the, on the sea. Like, we went on a cruise when we got, like, when we had our honeymoon. And like, there were a couple moments there where you're in the middle of the ocean, and that's it, right? There's nothing around. Like, and, and when it's dark out and you look over the ledge, you don't see anything. It's dark. It's terrifying, right? And some of you have been at the beach where it gets a little rough. I tried surfing once, a long time ago, in like a nor'easter when I was in sixth grade, and I got pummeled, and I've never tried surfing again. Why? Because the ocean is a very terrifying place. And we know a lot about it, right? Jacques Cousteau taught us a ton. But back then, the Israelites were not a seafaring people. That wasn't where they kind of like hung out. The rushing waters were a sign of judgment, were a sign of devastation, were a sign of everything you did not want to be a part of your life. And he says this, let everyone who is godly, who is faithful, who is loyal to me, offer a prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Because judgment is coming. Because judgment is coming. Redeemer Fellowship, what the psalmist is telling us here is that we have a window of opportunity to give our lives to God to confess our sin to God, to enter into a saving relationship with God. There's a window of opportunity. When he might be heard, confess to him. Because the rushing waters of judgment, of damnation, they're coming. I don't preach about like hell a ton. Right? The reason why is because I preach what's in front of me. I do. What's in front of me right now is a passage about judgment. It's a passage that's imploring us, be faithful, confess your sin to God, and come to faith because judgment is coming. That's what's going on here. That's what's going on here. But the beauty is, is like the emphasis is on let every godly person offer prayer to, to you at a time when you may be found. The emphasis is on like, on a time when you may be found. Like, if you're alive, if you got a pulse, that is a time when he may be found. That is a time that we can go to God in confession and ask him for forgiveness. And he will forgive us. Why? 
because his son Jesus died on a cross for our sins. He took the brunt of the punishment. He took all of the punishment so that we might go free. We don't have to continue as slaves to sin and death. There's actually an option for us. And so there's two paths that are set up before us. The path of righteousness, which is a path of confession and faith, and a path of judgment. And we can choose which path to travel down. We can choose which path to travel down. And, and the further we continue choosing that path of self-indulgence, of, of hatred, of, of, of enmity with God, of death, the further we get away. But it doesn't change the fact that once we confess, he's like, he's like yep, I'm here. I'm here. That doesn't negate all the work that we have to do afterwards to like deal with our stuff, Right? You know, one, one, one author says it like this, Jesus might live in our heart, but, but, but grandpa lives in our bones, which means like there's all this stuff that we bring to the table, even after we come to faith, even though our sin might be forgiven, we might have new life in Jesus. Like there's stuff, right? There's baggage that we're just kind of carrying with us. Like, and and that, that's, that's discipleship, that's sanctification. But that's not what this is about. What this is about is God imploring us through the lips of the psalmist, to entrust ourselves to King Jesus so that we might have forgiveness. And check out what he wants to do. He says this in verse 7. He says, you are a hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. He wants to be our hiding place. He wants to preserve us from trouble. That word trouble in the Greek, it's actually that same word that, that we see in the New Testament about tribulation and trial and even like the end times judgment that we see in Revelation. And so he wants to preserve us from that. And best of all, he wants to surround us with shouts of deliverance. I love that. What the psalmist is saying is that God wants to surround us with shouts of joy. That's the full meaning of that word. And what are those shouts of joy so excited about? Our deliverance, or better, our redemption. We're Redeemer Fellowship. That's the name of our church, right? We love redemption. God takes what's broken and he makes it new through the blood of his son, Jesus. That's what's going on. And, and, and God wants to offer that to us. That's really the point here. God wants us to be so near to him, so deeply acquainted with him, so full of his grace that we are lost in the wonder and beauty of our salvation. Eugene Peterson, he translate, translates it like this in the message. God is my island hideaway. He keeps danger far from the shore. He throws garlands of hosannas around my neck. I love that. He throws garlands of hosannas around my neck. God doesn't want us weighed down by our shame, by our sin. He doesn't want us to hide from him. He wants, to hide, he wants us to hide in him, right? That's the point. I'm reminded of the words from Charles Wesley's hymn, And Can It Be? He says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. 
My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. This is the good life. A life where we walk freely with God, forgiven of our sins, filled with the grace of King Jesus. And it's a word for both those of us who are already a part of God's family, and it's a word for those who have yet to entrust themselves fully to Jesus for their salvation. It's a word for both of us. And so wherever you are this morning, hear what I'm preaching, hear the words that I'm saying, hear the words of Scripture. Don't hide from God. Don't hide from God. But, but you know what's so cool? As you are hiding from God, he's out looking for you. He's out looking for you. For his kids, those who have entrusted themselves to him, he's looking for you. He's not going to give up. He's going to keep on pounding down your door. For those of us who are far from God, who have not entrusted themselves to Jesus for salvation, he's looking for you. He's coming for you. Just say yes. Just say yes. Stop, stop denying it. Stop running from it. David is showing us the two paths that are before us. The path where we embrace the forgiveness of God and the path where we look to ourselves for salvation. And in these closing verses, he looks the reader in the eye and he speaks directly to us. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near. David wants to teach us. He wants to instruct us. And what he wants to teach us is the way we should go. Right? The entire psalm is a callback to Psalm 1. Because it's in Psalm 1 where we're introduced to the good life. And I have a slide for Psalm 1. We're introduced to the good life and the way in which we should walk. It says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. And if you jump down to verses 5 through 6, it says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Again, there's two ways to live, righteously or wickedly. Psalm 1's a little different, though, because Psalm 1, what it does, it presents the ideal Israelite as one who is like a tree planted by streams of water, yielding fruit in its season. You read through Psalm 1, guess what? You ain't, you ain't meeting it. You're not doing it. How many of you have, have pulled off Psalm 1? Right? We don't pull off Psalm 1. But Psalm 32, that presents the broken Israelite, the one who stumbled off the path of righteousness and needs the grace of God to bring him back. And the only way to be brought back is to admit or make known our brokenness. The reformer Martin Luther argues that Psalm 1 is about Jesus, that he's the blessed man. Now, if that's true, and I believe it is, then the blessed ones of Psalm 32, they're all of us. 
calling out for forgiveness to God, for grace, for mercy. So guess what? Who's the one answering us? It's the blessed one from Psalm 1. It's Jesus, and he's the one who says, who is covering our sin. He's the one who doesn't count our iniquity against us, who, who presses his hand heavy upon us so that we have no other option but to call out to him for help. See, that's how I read that desert passage. I think it's God saying, like, like I'm turning up the heat because I need you to recognize that the path you're traveling down, it's not leading anywhere good. And so he's pressing in on us. It's like a form of discipline almost. He's like, no, come. Because if you keep going that path, like it's, it's not going to get better. The further you go down that other path, the less human you'll become and the more beast-like you will become. He's like, no, come to me. And then when we do... It's Jesus who, when we make our sin known to God, he's the one who immediately forgives us. He becomes our hiding place. He preserves us from trouble, and it's him surrounding us with shouts of redemption, tossing garlands of hosannas around our neck. And so maybe it's better to hear these words from the lips of the true and better David so that it's Jesus looking at us square in the eyes, teaching and instructing us, giving us his counsel with his eye upon us. It's Jesus pleading with us to not be stubborn like a horse or a mule, to flee from the sorrows of the wicked so that we might be surrounded with the steadfast love of Yahweh. And that's that word again. It's been showing up throughout the Psalms, that chesed love of God, the loyal covenant-keeping love of God. That, that steadfast love, that, that all-encompassing love, that, that love that just is just beyond human comprehension. And only then can we be glad in the Lord and rejoice. Only then can we be counted as righteous, as upright in heart, heart and then we can shout for joy. This is a message of salvation. That's what Psalm 32 is. That's why it's on that list of important psalms. I don't know who needs to hear these words this morning. But I can't help but imagine that there are some in this room who have never confessed their transgressions to the Lord. Who have never made known their sins to God. Some of you are here this morning and you're trusting in some fig leaves to cover your shame. Maybe you're hiding from the pain of being so badly sinned against that you can't imagine a world where anyone, let alone God, would look upon you and surround you with shouts of redemption. Maybe you're the one who did the sinning. Maybe you're the one who has hurt somebody so badly that you can't believe that there's forgiveness. There is no hole too deep that the blood of Jesus can't rescue you from. There is no hole too deep. That is not me speaking. That is the promise of God. The cross cleanses us from our shame. It removes it and it forgives us of our sin and it delivers to us the righteousness of Christ. Theologians call that imputed righteousness. So that no longer... Is our sin counted against us? Do you believe that? Do you believe that? 
I'm going to ask Cheryl to come up and strum on the guitar a little bit. But before we move to communion this morning, I want to give us some time to pray. If you're here, I don't normally do this, but this passage is just so overwhelmingly convicting and so clear. If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus, I'm going to hang out right here. And I'm going to ask you to come up and talk to me. I'm going to give us some time. If that's none of you, that's great. We're all going to heaven. That's wonderful. We're all going to be with Jesus for all eternity. But if you're here and you do not know God, then today's the day of salvation. Today's the day. There is the call out to him when he can be heard, right? Call out to him when he can be heard. This is the best news. And so I'm going to give us a few minutes. I'm going to ask our other elders, just come hang out up here. And if you also are just struggling with sin, that you feel like you just need to confess and, and you want to talk to one of us as a pastor, we're going to be up here for a few minutes while Cheryl is playing through Amazing Grace and singing Amazing Grace. We're going to be here for a few minutes and then we're going to partake of communion, okay? So do your thing, pray, pray for one another. We're just going to be up here hanging out. If you want to come talk to us, there is no shame. Just come. No one's going to be looking around and be like, oh, I knew it about that guy. No, that's not. And if that is you, then you should be up here.